Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're in Galatians 5 this morning. The title of our sermon is Keeping in Step with the Spirit. And our key words for our worshipers in training are live, conceited, and provoke. Now, I wonder if you, like I, have ever watched a news report and wondered why are they asking such silly questions. For example, imagine a reporter talking to a man who was in his backyard grilling steaks and then all of a sudden out of the trees came a giant grizzly bear right in the middle of his nice suburban neighborhood and it started chasing him down the road and eventually he escapes into his neighbor's house and he survives. That's at least six o'clock news stuff right there. But you get the reporter who comes to the man and says, tell us what you were thinking as you were being chased down the street by a grizzly bear. I mean, what is that guy going to say? Well, I was thinking that I really hope I can lose this bear off my track because I want my steak at a perfect 132 degrees so I can have it medium rare. But if it keeps going, it's going to hit 145 degrees and closer to medium, and it's just going to be a bummer. What kind of question is that? So what do they end up saying? Something really silly and cliche. Well, I was just thinking that if I don't find a place to go, then the bear's going to get me. Yes, he is. But what the guy really wants to say is, I was thinking, run faster. It's similar to pregame interviews with athletes and coaches. One of my favorite comedians jokes about this. When the question is asked, this is a best of seven tournament. You've lost the first two games So would you consider this third game a must-win game? Well, what are you going to say? Well, no, you see, because it is a best of seven, this is not a must-win game. We can lose this one, and we still have four other games. So if we win those four, we can still win the tournament. So, no, this is not a game we have to win, so we probably aren't going to even really try very hard. But they can't say that. So usually instead they use some kind of sports cliche. Yes, absolutely. We need to get out there. We need to leave it all out on the court. We've just got to keep our head in the game and drive on and make sure we're really patient and and focusing on the moment instead of getting too far ahead of ourselves. Now, what does any of that mean? It basically means... um, We're going to go out there and we're going to play and hopefully we get more points than the other team. Post-game interviews are not any better at all. Coach, your team just had a devastating loss. I know it hurts. What's going through your head right now? Well, honestly, I have the absolute worst team in the league with zero talent, so we didn't really expect any other outcome. Yeah, right. (laughs) He's going to say... 
I'm really proud of our guys, and we've got to hand it to the other team. They, they played really well. They never gave up. They gave 110% out there. 110%. How is that even humanly or mathematically possible? Now, you see, all of this is a bit humorous, but isn't it true that we often talk like this when it comes to our Christian lives? We have these things that we say that might technically be correct or have some kind of vague meaning that we can understand, but do we ever really stop to ask ourselves, what exactly does that mean? And what does that even look like? How does that even work? I think we're at a place in Paul's letter to the Galatians this morning where we could easily fall into the trap of speaking in cliche terms and not actually meaning anything or doing anything of real substance. Hopefully all of, a, all of us agree that the basic premise of what Paul is writing and that we will be looking at this morning is that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. But what does that mean? It's not readily obvious what that means on a practical level. What does it actually mean to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit? What does it mean to put to death the things of the flesh? All of this in in this bigger picture that Paul has drawn for us in this issue of sanctification in the Christian life. If we're being sanctified, if we're being made holy by the works of the Spirit, what do we do? What is our role? What is God's role? Just imagine if a reporter were to ask you that kind of question. How would you respond? How are you to grow in your Christian life and be sanctified in the Lord? I need to let the Spirit work in me. I need to let the gospel grip my heart. I need to fight to believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I need to run to Jesus. Well, those are all good things. The problem is we've not said exactly what any of that means or how we do it. How does any of that actually Work? How does God use the Spirit and the Gospel and our faith to make the possibility of growing in Christ's likeness an actual reality? This is the direction we're headed this morning. We're looking at Galatians 5, verses 25 and 26. And if you're using your blue ESV Bible from the seat back, the text is on page 975. So let's read those two verses together this morning, verses 25 and 26 from Galatians chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, one of the important things for us to see this morning is a point that we've brought up several times throughout Galatians, but it is essential for us to have a firm grasp on this reality and to remind ourselves of it regularly. Our first point is that Christians are not obligated to sin. Just one verse prior, in verse 24, Paul wrote, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
In other words, if you are a Christian, the works of the flesh that Paul mentioned in verses 19 through 21 should be put to death. They are no longer the things that you chase after and live for. They are not your reason for living. They are not your reason for working. Because the Christian life includes a new heart given by God that no longer has the same desires and longings. And the longer we are Christians, and the more we grow in our Christian lives, the more this becomes a reality. So remember, we said every time we turn back to the deeds of the flesh, we return back to the old dead self. We're kneeling beside our old dead corpse of that old person and we're trying to breathe life back into them. And the longer you've been a Christian, the more disgusting that image is. He's been dead for 10 years. She's been dead for 20 or 30 years and you're trying to breathe life back into her lungs, back into his body. It doesn't work. The old self has been put to death and there is no life in the works of the flesh. It's been crucified along with its passions and its desires. Uh, Several generations ago in Scotland when someone was executed publicly for their crimes, after they died, it was announced to the people that this person had been justified. In other words, the legal demands of the law no longer had any jurisdiction over them because the penalty had been paid. So in terms of legal obligation, there was no longer anything, any rule of law that needed to be observed. And this is the same kind of language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 6 and verse 7. The only difference is that Paul is reminding the Romans that when we're in Christ, we, we aren't justified by our own doing, but by the penalty being paid by another. Our penalty was paid by Christ so that we could be declared justified. Now, what does that have to do with our non-obligation to sin? Well, Paul's entire argument throughout the book of Galatians has been that the Galatians, as Christians, no longer have the legal obligations of the law. In other words, they are not bound to hold to the law so that they would be justified because Christ fulfilled the entirety of the law for them. So, We've understood, we've looked at every person who has ever lived being in one of two covenants. Either one is in a covenant of works, whereby a person is responsible in and of themselves to fulfill the entirety of God's law perfectly, or they are in a covenant of grace, whereby... We are in Christ who has fulfilled the entirety of God's law perfectly for us. Only Christ has ever fulfilled the covenant of works. So you want to be in the covenant of grace. But if you're not, 
you are judged according to the standard of the covenant of works, which is the law of God. And so what Paul does is he ties this to the flesh and to sin. And he says, if you're under the law, you cannot help but sin because the law is condemning and the law creates bondage. But when you are set free from your legal obligation to the law, sin no longer reigns in your life because the law no longer reigns in your life. And since the legal obligation of the law can no longer push us around, sin can no longer push us around. So Paul writes in Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So while we have a moral obligation to God's law because it reflects his character and and what he requires of mankind, it no longer has a legal obligation because we've been set free from it in Christ. We're no longer under the corrupting power of the law or the bondage of a works-oriented life. There's a story about G.K. Chesterton and Alexander Woolcott. They were meeting for lunch in London one afternoon. And in the course of their conversation, the two men were discussing the relationship between power and authority. And to illustrate, Chesterton said to Wolcott, suppose a rhinoceros were to enter into the restaurant now. There is no denying that he would have great power here but I would be the first to rise and assure him that he has no authority whatsoever. You see, in the life of every believer, sin has a compelling and alluring power, but it has no authority because it is no longer reigning over us when we are in Jesus Christ. The reigning power of sin has been broken because our legal obligation has been perfectly paid in Christ. We're no longer under the reign of the law as a condition for life. We're under the reign of grace. And and where justifying grace reigns, it reigns through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but never through self-righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to sin. We have everything we need not to sin. And yet, because we still do and will continue to struggle with and against the flesh, we will sin. So we need that in our mind. As Christians, as a Christian, I do not have to sin. And yet, as a Christian, I will sin. There's no possibility for perfection in this life. But that's not an excuse. And please don't let that be an excuse for yourself. It's so often when people are talking, perhaps you've said it, something like, well, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. That is a very true statement. Of course. However, why do we say that? Most often we say that to justify our sinful actions. 
we're walking ourselves into a situation with a mindset of, well, nobody's perfect. Why do we want to remind ourselves of that? Because of what we're going to do. We're going to sin. Instead of telling ourselves, reminding ourselves, I don't have to do this. By God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I do not have to do what I am about to do. You are not obligated, as you once were, to fulfill the passions and the desires of the flesh. Because in Christ, they've been put to death. And any attempt to revive them is to seek to breathe life into something that has already died when God gave you a new heart. Okay, so one of the ways we can answer the question of what it means practically to keep in step with the Spirit and to live by the Spirit is to say that we are not obligated to sin. And so we need to remind ourselves regularly of that non-obligation. And when we are tempted to sin, we need to preach to ourselves the gospel that has set us free from this obligation, that we not continue to walk in lawlessness, that we will be filled with shame and regret and all that comes with it. We need to stop in the midst of our actions and say to ourselves, you do not have to do this. You are free in Christ to walk away from your sin. You are free in Christ to resist temptation. You are free in Christ to walk in holiness and peace with God that all that comes as a result of sin not be with you, bearing the sin and the shame and the guilt. We are free to walk in Christ without sin. Well, the second thing that's important for us to see in verse 25 is that living and keeping in step with the Spirit requires effort on our part. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Well, the very language of Paul here implies action. I am to take active responsibility for my actions. There's something here that I must do. I cannot live and keep in step with the Spirit by sitting back and hoping that it will just happen to me. Sanctification, our being made holy and conformed all the more day by day into the image of Jesus Christ is a spirit-empowered, grace-driven effort on my part, which is wholly different from my justification. Justification happens in a single moment. It is entirely a work of God with nothing to do with anything of myself or any effort being offered as something where I can earn or secure it. But sanctification is an ongoing daily process that begins the moment I am justified and continues until I am glorified in heaven. And the Bible shows us it takes effort on our part. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul gives us a way to think about our sanctification. He writes, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for 
It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So living and keeping in step with the Spirit is both our working out our own salvation with fear and trembling and the work of God within us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's the reality. I will not grow in holiness in any way whatsoever if I'm not putting forward any kind of effort to do so. However, I could do everything I think I need to do to grow in holiness, but if God is not present in it, I'm wasting my time and spinning my wheels in the mud. So what does he tell me? He tells me two main things. First, I better be doing something. And second, whatever it is I'm doing, I better be sure that God is in it, right? And I want to do this because verse 25 is an imperative. It is a command. If we are saying we are in the Spirit, we belong to Christ and are not under the law and are living as Christians, then we need to be assured that we're keeping in step with the Spirit. Okay, so what am I doing to keep in step with the Spirit? It should be entirely informed by my wanting to make sure that God is in it, right? And while there's a tendency to what to, to think of this in some mystical way or to, to base our emotions, uh, to base all of this on our emotions or how we feel about something, we need something objective, And we need to say the only way we know if God is in something is if it is something that he has ordained as a means that we might have actual communion with him, that we might actually be walking with him. I hope that makes sense. In other words, I cannot know if God is in something unless God has told me that he will be unless he has told me what it is that I must do. So, what is the direction that God has given us that we might know what to do, that he would bless our efforts to be sanctified so that we're keeping in step with the Spirit? He has given us the means of grace. In other words, God uses specific means, specific delivery systems to bring his grace to his people. He gives us spiritual power. He gives us spiritual change and spiritual help and spiritual fortitude, spiritual blessing, spiritual understanding through his means. And this grace comes from our Father, through the Son, by the Spirit indwelling us, and it comes by way of the means that God has appointed These means are conduits through which God changes and transforms and develops us in our souls. So, what are these means then? What are the things I must do, and as I'm doing them, can know that God is in them because he has ordained them? We talk about them often because we believe very strongly that without them, we have no hope of spiritual nourishment or transformation. 
They are very simple means. They're nothing I'm going to say is mind-blowingly profound in any way, but they are essential, and we know that God is in them because he has ordained them and called us to utilize them. Things like Bible intake, reading the word, hearing the word preached and read, reading good Christian literature that helps me in my walk as a believer. Prayer, different kinds of prayer. Prayers of thanksgiving and repentance and intercession and adoration. The fellowship of the saints in corporate worship. Listen, if, if we're not gathering together as the church for worship where all of the means of grace are present together at the same time in one place, we can have no hope of spiritual growth and nourishment whatsoever. If gathering with God's people is not your number one priority, you will not see yourself growing as a Christian. It's not possible. You can't grow as a Christian apart from the church. And the other means of grace happen within the gathering of the local church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So Bible intake, prayer, the fellowship of the saints, baptism, the Lord's Supper. God has promised that he will be in all of these. And when we utilize these appropriately, properly, these ordinary primary means of grace, we can keep in step with the Spirit we can know that God is in them. I will tell you, not once yet, maybe it'll happen, but not once yet in nine years of ministry have I met a single person who has said, I have no spiritual joy, I have no growth in my Christian life whatsoever, but I am reading my Bible regularly, I'm listening to the preaching of God's word, I am praying faithfully, I'm gathering for worship, I'm in a small group, I'm partaking of the Lord's Supper regularly but I'm just not growing as a Christian. However, I can tell you I've talked to many, many Christians who have said, my life is a mess and I'm confused and I'm chasing after all kinds of temptation. I'm feeling beat down. I'm defeated at every turn. And when I ask, what are you doing in terms of the means of grace? 100% of the time, the answer is, I'm not really doing all that much at all. I don't really have a whole lot to do with my Bible at all. I'm only partially committed to gathering with the saints for worship. I don't really have much of a prayer life. So what can we expect? How can we as God's people expect to grow in Christ if we're not doing what God has given us and called us to to keep in step with the Spirit? And more specifically related to the context of Galatians 5, how can I expect not to pursue the works of the flesh and instead display the fruit of the Spirit when I'm not utilizing the means that the Spirit is in? We who belong to God live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. The indwelling Spirit gives us new life, that unites us with Christ. He transforms our desires. He empowers us to walk worthy of our high calling. His divine power 
has given us everything we need to pursue practical holiness and escape the entrapment of our fleshly desires. We are people belonging to Christ, selected, rebuilt, and redirected to proclaim his excellencies. That's who we are. That's a glorious thing. And when we're walking with him, we resist the flesh because of who we are. We are free in him. We are equipped by his spirit to live for his glory. He's given us everything we need to do that. To be faithful to pursue greater communion with him that we might keep in step. And so all of that tells us that the ball is in our court. And I can assure you that if we are utilizing what God has given us with an earnest desire to know more of him and to be conformed to the image of Christ, he will meet with us and our communion with him will grow sweeter and we will be sanctified. The alternative is that we live according to the flesh. And we see that in our final point this morning in verse 26. If we live according to the flesh, instead of keeping in step with the Spirit, we destroy the body of Christ. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The implications of verse 26 are as a result of doing the works of the flesh instead of keeping in step with the Spirit. Paul's simple point is that if we are living in the Spirit, we will not behave arrogantly or in a conceited manner, provoking one another, envying one another. However, if we are indulging in the works of the flesh, we will be puffed up and arrogant. The ESV uses the word conceited, which can also be translated as, as boastful or to have vain ambition. It means you have vain thoughts about yourself. I always think of the old Saturday Night Live guy staring in the mirror and saying, you're good enough, you're strong enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. When we have that mindset, we become puffed up. We become arrogant and we try to portray that to others. Why? Because we are concerned mostly about ourselves, our flesh, not about walking in the spirit. And what happens in the body of Christ when we have that kind of thinking going on? Imagine if all of us had that mindset We'd be puffed up and arrogant and it would breed jealousy and disputes and dissensions and there would, be, there would be factions all over the church. It is the opposite of the meekness that we are called to. Thinking of others more highly than ourselves. Putting all of our wants and desires aside for the good of others. The two main consequences that Paul points out are that we provoke or challenge one another and we envy one another. 
what was very likely going on at the church in Galatia and why Paul is writing this to them is that the people within the church who were being influenced by the Judaizers were beginning to boast in the flesh because they were depending not on the work of Christ but on the law and their fulfilling, their, their idea that they were fulfilling the law. They thought they were more spiritual because they were trying to earn something. And when we, we get legal-hearted, when we get into a legal frame of mind, we can't help but compare ourselves to everyone else and their actions. You can just imagine their attitudes. Look at them. They don't even care about God's law. They don't care about what they eat. They don't care about circumcision. What, what are they? Who do they think they are depending on faith alone? They might as well go out and do whatever they want to do with that attitude. I must, I'm, they must just think that God is just going to forgive anything and everything anyway. So do what you want to do. Those were real charges. Paul responded to them in the scriptures. And so when they have that attitude, they get conceited and they get puffed up. And as a result, they challenge one another and they envy one another. And when Paul writes about challenging one another, he, he uses a word that's generally used in athletic or, or military uh, contests where the aim is to show one's superiority over the other. It's about domination. And so the bottom line is if we fail to crucify the flesh, we will provoke one another. Not to love and good deeds, but to challenge one-upsmanship and envy. So what happens if we are full of vain ambition and self-seeking? When someone crosses us, or if he does not recognize us in the way that we think we should be recognized, what do we do? We become angry and we challenge him. We challenge those who are in authority over us with resentment and anger. We challenge those who are under us by manipulating them and intimidating them. The other consequence is envy. Envying is the bitterness and the resentment arising when others receive honor or promotion that we believe we deserve. Vain ambition leads to envy every time we resent something or someone, getting an opportunity or a position or praise that we think should belong to us. And when someone considered inferior to us, is promoted over us. And often, out of envy, we put them down or we use innuendo to cast doubt on the person or their abilities, and we resent them, and we never give them respect, or we never think highly of them, or we never actually love them. You know, one of the really big ways that uncrucified flesh manifests itself is actually in churches where sin is taken seriously. Why? Because we have a tendency to want to hide our obvious sins. If you're a Christian and you're surrounded by other Christians who know you and are keeping watch over your soul for your benefit that you will remain count accountable and faithful, 
but you have some recurring sin that you're engaging in, chances are your willingness to admit that and to be accountable in that is, is pretty low. There are things like pride that tend to erupt in conceit and boasting and arrogance and feelings of superiority and attempts to challenge and cut others down and to promote oneself and to resent others for what they have. But if this is a part of the church, it can't stand for long because in a true fellowship of believers... Knowing that we belong to Christ means that we cannot be out for ourselves or else there will always be clashes. Let's face it, if it weren't for Christ redeeming us, a lot of us wouldn't hang out together probably, right? We're a very different people with different interests and different things that go on in our lives. But in Christ, he brings us together and he molds us together. And there's nobody else in the world we'd rather be with than the people of God. But if we are challenging one another and envying one another, it's not what we have in common in the body and blood of Jesus Christ that brings us together. It's the differences of the flesh that clash up against one another and drive us apart. But as Christians, we need to be reminded that the flesh has been crucified along with its passions and its desires. And we can live by the Spirit, we can walk by the Spirit. The flesh can be suppressed, pride can be buried, envy can be mortified, and the fruit of the Spirit can be manifest. Even the sins of the heart that we think are buried and hidden will come to the surface. And we and those around us will see them and be forced to deal with them. If we are in Christ, he will use the means that he's given us to bring conviction of sin, to bring repentance, and to force us to deal with our hearts in a real way. And if there is something in your life that you are doing that you're trying to hide and yet you have other Christians around you saying, I see this in your life and you continue to push it away and say, it's not there. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see it. You're probably lying to yourself. Consider your ways in light of God's word. And if you're hearing these things from others, but you yourself are not utilizing the means of grace. Chances are you won't see them because you're not doing what God's called you to do, that you would be reminded you're not obligated to sin, that you can walk in the Spirit. Now, I realize that as Christians, we can say some really unhelpful things sometimes because we get into a place where we're just reciting easy to say phrases, but we don't actually put feet to them because we don't really know what the results are that we should be shooting for. But when we stop to think, what does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? What does it look like to keep myself from being involved in challenging others and being the source of envy for others? 
we really start to get down to the bare bones of what it means to be a faithful, growing Christian who's being conformed day by day to the Holy Spirit, growing in grace and enjoying the experience of communion with God. And I hope all of us desire that. Now, some are hearing this and will not have an experience with God because they're not Christians. Now, you may know you're not a Christian at all, or you may assume you are when you're really not. And I hope you'll take a minute and think about this. This one question, what is my only hope in life and death? When I boil everything else down, and when I take all of my life and my pursuits down to the most basic level, what am I living for? And when I die, what will happen to me? And if your answer does not include Jesus Christ and his glory and his life and work on your behalf, I want to call on you this morning to admit before God that you have broken his law, that you are a sinner, and that you are who he says you are, and acknowledge before God that apart from Christ you have no hope. If you put your faith in the life and work and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he will not turn you away. He will give you hope. He will give you a new heart. He will give you new desires. He will give you life. And he will give you all the means he's provided that you would continue to grow in him and look more and more like Christ. And that is the life that Christ has intended And if you're a Christian, I hope this morning you will consider whether or not you are, with a thankful heart, utilizing the means of grace that you might have sweet communion with God, keeping in step with the Spirit of God. And if you're not, ask yourself, what is lacking here? And more importantly, what am I going to do about it? Keeping in step with the Spirit is a call to action for the good of your soul and for the good of our church that we might not come up against one another in a conceited, puffed-up way of living under the law, but that we might think of one another as more highly than ourselves. This is true love. Belonging to Christ is a sweet, sweet blessing beyond all others in your life. You no longer have an obligation to sin and to your flesh. And you have all that you need to walk faithfully along the way with Christ by the Spirit. What is holding you back? If you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit for your spiritual joy, for your peace, for your nourishment, and for his glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word has the ability to pierce us in our hearts and plow us under in our self-righteousness and our self-pursuits and in our prideful desires to live according to the flesh. 
But we thank you, God, that when you plow us under by your word, that you bring us up by the power of the gospel, reminding us that we who are in Christ have freedom and we have hope and we have peace and we have joy and we have the grace and the mercy and the love of our Father who doesn't look on us with disdain and contempt, but who looks on us with delight. Father, help us to rejoice that we are your children. And even in the midst of our most grievous sins, that you love us as your children. That you keep us. That you walk with us that you provide for us and that you continue to call us into communion with you to continue to keep in step with the spirit that you might be glorified and that we would be conformed all the more to the image of Christ. Help us this week, Lord, to be mindful of your word, to ask ourselves, where am I lacking in my walk with God? And what am I going to do about it? Bring that thought to mind. Give us a reminder of all that you have provided, all the means that are there for us to change that situation. And that driven and powered and fueled by the gospel with the indwelling of the spirit that we can walk faithfully and do what we need to do as your people that we would have true peace and true joy and experience and express true love, that the fruit of the Spirit might be manifest in each and every one of us. We pray that you would do this for your glory and namesake and for the good of your church. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.